This morning, to get us started, I'm going to need the help of one of the kids in here. Just one of the kids to come up here and help me out. Let's see here. Uh, Clayton, I saw your hand first, so come on up here. Now, I've got some glasses that I want you to wear for everybody here. They're really cool, so don't worry. You're not going to look silly or anything. Okay? So, I'm going to put these on you. All right. Clayton looks pretty cool, doesn't he? All right? Yeah. All right. Do you notice anything strange about those glasses? Oh, wow. They probably, they probably couldn't hear you. Well, I wasn't expecting you to know exactly what they were right away. But he says these are special glasses. They are spy glasses. He can see me right now because they have these little mirrors on the side. Well, can you see me? Hey, all right. So he can see me right now. These are spy glasses. These are glasses that my son got when he went and visited the spy museum in Washington, D.C. Oh, I don't know, a year or so ago. And you enjoying those? And see, so you can stand, someone can be behind you and you can see what they're doing. If they're coming up on you or maybe just you want to check and see what they're reading or whatever else. And so these are, these are super special James Bond-like spy glasses, okay? Now, the reason I had you come up here and put these on for us is because the text we're dealing with today, um, Paul talks about people who have snuck into the church or who come out of the church but are sneaky and deceptive, and he calls them wolves. You can have a seat for me real quick. Matter of fact, in one passage of Scripture in the book of Galatians, Paul actually says this, There are false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery. There are these false prophets in the church. There are false teachers that arise from within the church. And, and usually it's very deceptive and very secretive. Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravenous wolves. Do you guys ever remember the cartoon, um, I think it was called Ralph the Wolf and Sam the Sheepdog? Y'all remember that? Nobody? It was, it was one of the um, Looney Tune cartoons. And, and the wolf looked just like Wile E. Coyote, by the way. But, so the wolf is, is Ralph the Wolf and the, Sam the Sheepdog. And they, they go to, they punch in, they punch, do their punch card, and then they go and do their jobs. And the sheepdog's always stopping the wolf from actually killing the sheep. But the sheep, the, the Sam, I mean, Ralph the Wolf's always coming up with creative ways to get into the flock. And, a lot, and one of those was he puts on a, a sheep suit. Okay, and he sneaks into to try to steal some of the sheep. Well, in the body of Christ, from the very beginning of the church age, there has always been those who have secretly been in the church to bring harm to the church, to destroy the church, to spy out our freedom, to destroy the sheep. And that's what we're talking about today as we continue to uh, go through the book of Acts and this particularly this chapter which we've been in a whole lot longer than I ever dreamed we would be in Acts chapter 20. Matter of fact I thought we would almost be done with the whole book of Acts by now when we started it back up but once we got into chapter 20 uh, Paul has some really really um, deep and wonderful things that he is speaking to the Ephesian elders here and so we've camped out on this passage for a while and I'll go ahead and tell you in advance, we're, we're going to be here again next week, all right? So get used. To, y'all should have this text 
memorized by the time we're done with Acts chapter 20. We're talking about wolves today. We're dealing with what Paul says here about wolves in the church. I kind of set myself up last week, didn't I, when I said this may be the most important sermon I've ever preached at Harbin's. And I still believe that. But I probably got more emails and calls this week, people saying, hey, I'm praying for you, which is great. And I think I should say that every week. Well, in, actually, in actuality, it's true. The most important sermon I ever preach at Harbin's is the next one. That's the way it's going to be as long as there's preaching going on in this pulpit. The next sermon is the most important sermon in the history of this church. But in this case, this issue of wolves in the church is a particularly uh, relevant issue today for a lot of reasons. And also, I know the backgrounds. I know uh, the sheep that are in this flock Things you guys have had to deal with, things you've come out of, things you've been confronted with. And I know that the issue of wolves in the church is very, very uh, relevant to this church body. Now, I want to bring us up to speed, just kind of give us a little context here. Again, Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem. He's trying to get back to Jerusalem in order to be there for Pentecost. He decides not to go into Asia on his way back. He doesn't want to get distracted from his journey. But he, he cares for the church in Ephesus and for the churches in the Asian region. And so he calls the, the Ephesian elders to himself. And he speaks to them. And he gives them this, this basically this sermon on elders here. And he does two things in this sermon. Number one, he gives them an example to follow. He gives them an example to follow from his own life, from his own ministry. And secondly, he gives them a charge to keep. Now that charge is verses 28 through 32, what we're looking at today. From Paul's example, though, that we looked at over the past few weeks, we see that elders should be men who are, are consistently and visibly holy people. They should live lives of consistent, visible holiness. Elders should be men who humbly serve the Lord. Elders should be men who passionately and sacrificially serve the Lord. Elders should be men of hard work and happy generosity. And elders should be men who courageously preach the word of God. Paul courageously propagated all of God's truth to all God's people by all God-ordained means. All truth, all people, all means. And then he gives them this charge to keep. And he says that elders are called to shepherd God's people by vigilantly, vigilantly leading them, feeding them, and protecting them. And last week, all we were able to get to was the leading them and feeding them. And so today, we're going to talk about the protecting them. And just as I said last week, the, this scripture just screams out multiplicity of elders all over the place. First of all, he calls the Ephesian elders plural to himself, the, the elders, plural, of the church singular in Ephesus to come to him. So there's a multiplicity of elders in the church body. And plus, elder, one man, a one-man band can't lead the sheep. He needs help. There needs to be other shepherds involved. And also when it comes to protecting, by all means, we know that we need to have a multiplicity of elders. If elders are going to do here what Paul tells them to do, and that is to protect the flock, to protect them from false teachers and from false teaching. Here Paul calls these false teachers wolves. Now real quickly in your notes, I'm going to give you three things about false teachers, and then we're going to go into a little bit more in depth as to how we identify false teachers. 
Okay, so here's the structure today. Let me just kind of give you where we're going. I'm going to give you three uh, observations about wolves, false teachers from this text. And then we're going to talk about, uh, first of all, how do we identify uh, wolves or false teachers. And then next week I'm going to come back and say, how do we deal with false teachers and wolves in the church? So first thing, though, I want you to look here when it comes to wolves. These three things, we'll see if it can come up here. Go ahead and go to it because the slide's not working. There we go. False teachers are called wolves by Jesus and by Paul. And wolves are deadly, they're disguised, and they are duplicitous. Deadly, disguised, and duplicitous. Jesus calls them ravenous wolves. Paul calls them fierce wolves, not sparing the flock. They are deadly. False teaching and false teachers are deadly to the church. It's not just something we just sort of brush off and push off to the side and, and oh, it's not that big a deal, or they can believe that and we can believe this. False teaching is deadly. The words here that Paul uses, the words that Jesus uses, ravenous, fierce, not sparing the flock, means that this is something of vital, vital importance. We are to take this seriously. Paul also says that wolves are disguised. Verse 29, these wolves are among you. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. So not only are there, the wolves will come up from within the body, but also even from within the eldership. In the church of Ephesus, Paul is warning them that, that false teachers, wolves, will arise among you within the body. That means they're disguised. As Jesus said, they're in sheep's clothing. In his letter to Titus, Paul calls them hidden reefs, shipwrecking the faith of many. Jude tells us that they've crept in unnoticed. So they're crafty, they're sneaky, they're disguised because they creep in and they come from within the body. And Paul says here, most fearfully to me, is that they come from within the eldership. Which is why Paul's already challenged the elders to keep careful watch over yourselves. 2 Peter 2.1 says, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. They're like spies. Espionage has been used since the beginning of warfare to sneak in, to undermine the opposition. And in this case, Satan puts his secret agents of destruction into the church. So it requires for the, the church to be alert, to be discerning, to be wise, and to be bold. And wolves are duplicitous. Verse 30, it says, they speak twisted things and draw away disciples after them. They're hard to detect, they're sneaky, they're crafty, they're slick, and they're dangerous. Now why do we need to even talk about wolves? Can we just end the sermon right there? Okay, yes, wolves are bad, great. And let's go on with life. Why do we need to spend some time here talking about wolves? Well, people don't like to talk about false teachers or false teaching in our culture today, in our tolerant society today, because people, you don't, people don't like others being labeled as something. But we need to take it seriously because of these warnings that we've already mentioned and that there are scriptures all throughout the Bible the scriptures teach us that there will be false teachers. 
The Old Testament is filled with warnings about false teachers, specifically Jeremiah, but Isaiah, Micah, others, warning us against false teachers within the people of God. And then in the New Testament, you almost can't find a single book in the New Testament that doesn't deal with false teachers. It's an important issue. It's an important issue to Scripture, so it should be an important issue to us. But people don't like to talk about false teachers today because of the state of the church in America. We don't like to talk about false teachers, but the scary thing is that actually makes the church ripe for a feeding frenzy. But we live in, in an atheological, doctrinally apathetic, doctrinally, theologically indifferent culture. And our churches are, for the most part, doctrinally indifferent. The spirit of our age is syncretism, and thus accommodation is the rule. Pragmatism trumps sound teaching. I guarantee you, I heard another pastor say this, so I'm going to steal his illustration. If you were to, today I were to say, okay, we're announcing two classes that are going to meet on Sunday night. Class number one is going to be an in-depth discussion of the Trinity. Class number two is going to be how to fix your finances. Which class is going to be better attended? The class on your finances. Because we live in a culture that's peripheral. We want to talk about these things on the edge. It's not that those things are bad. Let's deal with those things. Let's look at the scriptures. But let's point people to the gospel. And let's get deep into our theology. So that we know how to handle our finances correctly. But instead we live in a culture that, that majors on the minors. We, we love the peripheral. We love the, the things that, that, that are pragmatic. Sound teaching isn't attractive. We're told that doctrine divides, but Christ unites. Just love Jesus, man. Can't we all just get along? Just love Jesus. And we've probably all heard it from the lips of those who claim to be pastors in the church. All I care about is that they love Jesus. That's all I care about. There are hundreds Hundreds of cults across this nation that say they love Jesus. If they just love Jesus, man, is your only, uh, the only barometer by which you're measuring if someone's a wolf or not a wolf, then you're in a lot of trouble. We're all in a whole lot of trouble. Matter of fact, you can find a secular person on the street and they'll tell you they love Jesus. Yeah, he was a great man. He's a great philosopher, Right? They love Jesus, man, doesn't cut it. Paul doesn't say, watch out for wolves. Just make sure they love Jesus, man. Now let's go on. But that's the spirit of our age. Empty generalities reign supreme. Inch-deep theology designed not to offend in the name of building bridges of understanding is the flavor of the day. Doctrine is cast aside as foolishness, and theological precision is scoffed at and labeled as semantic silliness. Words have been devalued so that nothing means everything and everything means nothing. On top of all of this, we live in an age where wisdom and discernment are in short supply. All around. 
On one side, discernment and wisdom is lacking by those shepherds and those sheep who willingly cast aside deep and sound doctrine to the degree that they unwittingly or sometimes wittingly find themselves embracing and fellowshipping with wolves, thus exposing their congregations to much, much danger. But on the other side, there's a lack of discernment in those who care about the sheep and desire doctrinal exactitude, yet in their zeal for the truth, or perhaps just in their zeal for knowledge and rightness, they forget how to correct with gentleness and fire away at the wolves while taking down some of the sheep as collateral damage. Some contend for the faith, but some people are just content with being right. There's a mistake there as well. Discernment is needed. Wisdom is needed. Why do we talk about false teachers? Why should we really even need to worry about these wolves? Because it matters. What you think about the Bible, what you think about biblical issues, matters. Your understanding of the Trinity or the deity of Christ, or the inspiration of Scripture, or the nature of the atonement. These things are not items assigned to Bible trivial pursuit for theologians and Bible-thumping nerds to do in their spare time. These are things that deeply affect your faith. They are vital. They are life-giving truths. And like dominoes in your belief system, if one falls, they all begin to tumble. One after another. You probably all heard the story of Billy Graham's best friend in the 1950s. His ministry partner began to walk away from the inerrancy of Scripture. And that was the only issue that he had an issue with Billy Graham. Because I just don't know if I can embrace the whole of Scripture. The story goes on that that man on his deathbed was an atheist. He had totally walked away from the faith. One domino after another domino after another domino began to fall because we just don't consider this doctrine to be that important. So we're not going to defend it. We're not going to talk about it. And therefore the wolves come in and put something in its place. And the next thing you know, our whole faith system has fallen down. Most wolf teaching is simply the rehashing of old heresies. Old teachings that began at the beginning of the church age. And to ignore them does a disservice to the church fathers who went before us and fought for the truth, even died for the truth, for these truths that we today so just casually set aside. I, I, I think if the Arian controversy or some of the early Trinitarian controversies were to come up today, we'd all sit around a round table and just agree to disagree. I don't think that. I know that because it's happened. It happened just a couple of weeks ago. They fought, our church fathers fought against false teachings, heresies like Sabellianism. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Sabellius was the name of the um, third century um, teacher who taught that God is not three persons. God is not th- three distinct persons in the Godhead. He denied the Trinity, therefore, but instead he said God manifests himself in different modes. The God of the Old Testament is the Father. This is what Sibelius would say. The God of the New Testament is the Son. And the God God now manifests himself as the Holy Spirit. But he's never the same at the same time. He just manifests himself as different things. That is a heresy. Those who embrace that heresy baptize only in the name of Jesus in direct opposition to 
Matthew chapter 28. There are so many biblical truths that come tumbling down when you embrace a heresy like that. The very nature of God is at stake. The very, the very thing that Christ accomplished on the cross, the gospel is at stake. Sabellianism is also called today modalism. Modalism came back in vogue in the early 1900s when there was a split in the Pentecostal movement. Okay, most Pentecostals embraced the doctrine of the Trinity, but there was an offshoot, the United Pentecostal Church International, Oneness Pentecostals, that embraced modalism and still embrace modalism. This is the doctrine that is officially taught by T.D. Jake's church. It's the official doctrine of the church. Here is the statement. There is one God, creator of all things, infinitely perfect and eternally existing in three manifestations father son and holy spirit this is still what td jake's church would say we have one god but he is father in creation son in redemption and holy spirit in regeneration that is a heresy that is a heretical statement to say that and yet just a couple weeks ago mr jakes was embraced as a brother with those who claim to be orthodox in their faith and he wasn't really pushed on this issue very hard. And he came up with this sort of some generalities and was able to kind of flower his statements. But he never dismissed this term manifestations, which is where the, 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 the meat of the problem really is. And he was embraced as a brother, sitting at the table with a wolf. I sincerely believe T.D. Jakes is not a true teacher of the gospel for various reasons beyond just these, this modalism that he embraces. But we don't know about Sabellianism because we live in a doctrinally indifferent age. We don't care about it. And therefore, when someone comes up and says something, well, it doesn't sound that bad. It doesn't sound that different than saying God is three persons. It doesn't sound that different. So manifestations, persons, who cares? You know what? It's just be, let's just love each other. He loves Jesus, doesn't he? He doesn't love the same Jesus that we love if he doesn't embrace the Trinity. It's not the same Jesus. The Gnostics in the second century claimed that matter and body were evil and that spirit was good and that they had that you had to have some sort of secret knowledge necessary for salvation. We see this today in Scientologists, in Mormons, and in Christian scientists. Montanists in the late second century, they claimed that they had a mouthpiece of God through the Holy Spirit, therefore they denied the sufficiency of Scripture and said they could speak authoritative words apart from the Scripture through the Holy Spirit. We see this today in many quarters of the charismatic movement and even among evangelical pragmatists. Marcionites in the mid-2nd century claimed that there were actually two gods. The God of the Old Testament, who is mean and wrathful, and the God of the New Testament, who is sweet and loving. Their heirs today are the theological liberals who who reject any notion of divine judgment and say that the God of the New Testament is love, not wrath. Arians rejected the divinity of Christ, saying that he was a lesser created being, Exactly the same as Unitarians and Jehovah's Witnesses do today. 
Pelagians deny original sin. They taught that man is not spiritually dead, just corrupted. They would claim that sin is a problem of education of the will, not of our nature, which is what we see today in some branches of evangelicalism and in the Roman Catholic Church. They would teach that the fall did not entirely erase our ability to choose good and that man can choose God. Semi-Pelagians would teach that God needs our cooperation in order to save us. And we could go on and on and on, and you would see that this is just rehashing, rehashing, rehashing heresies that have been around since the very, very beginning. It's the same stuff. Satan, now let's don't discount him. I think he is a pretty creative being, but he's not that creative. He just takes the same stuff, puts it on a new platter, fixes it up a little bit, and gives it to the next generation of people to eat. And what's so sad is we live in such a doctrinally indifferent age that... Well, our church fathers wouldn't, even, wouldn't, wouldn't put up with half the stuff we put up. Now, we also live, I believe, in a more gracious age. We're more careful with how we deal with heretics and those who disagree with the Scriptures. Okay, we're not going to go out and burn people. We're going to set up a stake out here and start burning people. Okay, there are serious errors in the way the church dealt with heresy early on. But the fact of the matter is there are heresies in the church. There are wolves, and we need to know how to identify them. So let's talk about identifying wolves. Now, kids, you remember the old story. You'll go and bring up my slide for me there. Okay? You remember the old story of, well, the old story, the red, Little Red Riding Hood, right? And so Little Red Riding Hood, she comes to the house. Grandma's not there, depending on which one you read, either the cleaned-up version or the not-cleaned-up. The wolf either ate her or has her in the closet, whichever. But Grandma's not in the bed anymore. It's the wolf there. The wolf is there, and he's got Grandma's little, what do you put on the head? I don't know. Grandma's little thing and bonnet and everything, her robe and everything else. And she comes up, and she begins to be suspicious because she says, Oh, my, what big eyes you have and what big ears you have and paws and Grandma shouldn't have paws. And, and what big teeth you have. And she begins to notice these type of things. So this is what we're doing now. We're, we're looking at what are some of the signs of, well, wolves. Well, the first thing we want to ask, well, it's not up there. In your notes there is, is this question. What does this teacher do with the Bible? What does this teacher do with the Bible? Because wolves love to distort the Scriptures. Wolves love to distort the Scriptures, or twist the Scriptures is what I wrote up there on your notes. Wolves love to twist the Scriptures, as we've already mentioned. This is one of the reasons that wolves are hard to detect. Because they take the Scripture and they just twist it a little bit and make it mean something that it doesn't really mean. They, twist, they speak twisted things here, according to Paul, drawing disciples away after them. These twisted things here that Paul speaks of are... are Wolves twisting scripture, as we read of in 2 Peter 3, 14. It says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them, speaking about what Paul has written, Scriptures, there are something in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. 
This is why wolves resist doctrinal clarity and theological precision. Okay, it's not splitting hairs to insist upon clarity. Some Christians are just lazy, unwilling to think hard in this age of microwave Christianity. But other false teachers who accuse doctrinally-minded Christians of splitting hairs are in reality just hiding behind their own twisting of Scripture. Twisted things always have a bit of truth of them, making them hard to detect at times. Yet at other times, some false teachers just boldly add to God's Word a new revelation, a fresh word from God. That's how most cults get started. Jeremiah 23, 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesied to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. If a man comes into the church and begins to teach to you things that are not from the mouth of the Lord, and this right here is what is from the mouth of the Lord, then he is a false teacher. If he's adding to this, and speaking to you new revelations. God spoke to me a new word today. Thus saith the Lord. Dangerous, dangerous stuff. The way scripture is twisted and distorted can either be it's added to or parts of it are just conveniently ignored. That's why Paul's remedy for dealing with false teachers was for Timothy to preach the word. Preach the word, preach the word, preach the word. 2 Timothy 3, as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. This has been Paul's repeated theme all throughout both books, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy 4, 6. Put these things before the brothers. What things? The words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Verse 11 of 1 Timothy 4. Command and teach these things. Verse 13. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. Verse 2. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. 2 Timothy 1.13. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. Chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, verse 15. Present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. One way to detect those big ears, oh, what big ears you have, grandmother, is if they're not using this properly. If they're adding to it, or if they're conveniently ignoring it, if they're not rightly dividing this word, they very well may be a wolf. I'm not going to say that they definitely are a wolf, but they may be. Do you know why you want deacons in the church? Because you want your pastors in the Word. And because you, there are deadly wolves out there adding to, subtracting from, twisting, swerving from Scripture. And if I or Deemer spend most of my time doing other things other than praying and studying this book right here, then I'm leaving the pen door wide open for wolves. Let the pastors boldly dare all things by the word of God. Let them constrain all the power, glory, and excellence of the word of the world to give place to and obey the divine majesty of his word. Let them enjoin everyone by it. 
from the highest to the lowest. Let them edify the body of Christ. Let them devastate Satan's reign. Let them pasture the sheep, kill the wolves, instruct and exhort the rebellious. Let them bind and loose thunder and lightning if necessary, but let them do it all according to the word of God. That's John Calvin that said that. So the first thing is, how do we identify wolves is, well, what does this teacher do with the Bible? Wolves love to twist Scripture. Second question is, who is this teacher teaching for? Because wolves aim to please men. Who is this teacher teaching for? Verse 30. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. There's the twisted Scripture. To draw away the disciples after them. One of the easiest ways to draw men is to preach and teach with the aim of pleasing men. Which is why so much pragmatism has swept into the church. Galatians 1.10 For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that, we preached, that was preached by me is not man's gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Men do not want to hear the word of God because men are sinful. Men would prefer to hear a self-help speech. And I could do it. I guarantee you I could. And so could Deemer. Okay? Isaiah 30, verse 10. This is what the people were saying to Isaiah. Do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Men don't want to hear the word. They want smooth things. And because some teachers care more about men than they do the word, they are ripe for heresy. A lot of churches aren't necessarily teaching heresy, but they're ripe for it. They're ripe for heresy because they care more about pleasing men than making sure they're expositing the word correctly. And what's primary in their, in their, in their goals and their aims is to make sure this place is filled up. And so we've got to please men. We gotta make sure men are happy. We gotta speak some relevant topics. We can't just get on here and talk about wolves with Paul speaking to some old guys in Ephesus a long time ago. We need to speak about something going on in their life right now. So let's find a verse that's really happy and fun and gets people pumped up and we'll jump off of that as a springboard and talk about a bunch of things to help you out. There is a way to deal with the issues of life. Let me tell you how it is. Preach through the word verse by verse by verse by verse. That will deal with everything. Because this book in here has everything you need for godliness. Everything you need for faith and practice. It's right here in this book. If we preach through it faithfully, God will deal with the issues as they come up in your life through the word. You don't need me up here giving you ten steps how to fix this or that in your life. You need the word telling you the truth. You need the gospel to infiltrate your heart and to change your heart at the core. That's what we need. Satan has convinced teachers today that the loving thing to do is to not mention truths like hell or wrath or sin. When in reality it's a terribly hateful thing to do to not mention those things. True love means we do mention them. 
Love wins when hell is spoken of as the Scripture speaks of it, and thus men are cut to the heart, and they repent, and they turn to God. That's how love wins. But we fear speaking the truth of love. And let's face it, some of us aren't very good at speaking the truth in love. We struggle with the love part, but it doesn't change the fact that we're called to speak the truth. We fear men instead of a holy God who has given us a word to proclaim. So wolves arise, 2 Timothy 4, 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. The time is coming and is here, my friends. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This scripture isn't just speaking to people in general. Paul is speaking about church people. The people that will not endure sound teaching, that will have itching ears, will be the people in the church. Itching ears, wandering away from the truth and into myths. So this is another way to identify wolves. Because wolves aim to please men. How else? What is the disposition and attitude of the teacher? Wolves are filled with pride and arrogance. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. The aim of the wolf is to develop his own following. They draw attention to themselves. They make much of themselves. Third John, not one that we refer to a lot, but Third John says this. I have written to the, something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. According to Jude, okay, the shepherds, these false teachers, are people who feed themselves. 1 Timothy 6.3, which we already read earlier, if anyone teaches a doc, different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up and, he, and with conceit and understands nothing. One of the things that false teachers do is they cast dirt on, they belittle, and they make fun of those who disagree with them, or, and they despise any authority over them. Thus, those things are the outworking of pride and arrogance. Titus 1.10 says they are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. I think one of the telltale signs of a wolf is that Okay, because all of these things we're mentioning up until the very last one that I'll get to in a little bit could be things that are happening to people that are not wolves. Because there are people that are not wolves that are very prideful and arrogant. I know plenty of pastors that I don't think are wolves that stand in the pulpit with a lot of pompous pride and arrogance. I don't think they're necessarily a wolf. Okay, there's also some pastors who love to please men. That doesn't necessarily make them a wolf. I'm just saying these are some signs, Right? But one of the things to me is when, how does that person receive correction? How does that person receive rebuke? How does that person receive pushback? And if they shout out that you're a hater because you push back at them, they may be a wolf. They may be a wolf. Wolves are prideful people, full of themselves, puffed up with conceit. Another thing, another question to ask is, what is the 
lifestyle of the teacher. Wolves do not demonstrate nor call people to holiness. And this is all, there's lots of passages that deal with the ungodliness of wolves, but let me just bring a few up. First of all, let me point us to verse 32 here in the text today. And now I commend to you, commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all who are being, what? Sanctified. Holiness. Sanctification. Wolves love to promote the sensual. For certain people, according to Jude 4, have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. I, and I'll, deal with, I'll deal with this next week and, I, and, I, and I'll be pointing the finger at myself. But sometimes I don't deal with controversy real well. And, and I got mixed into a pretty heated argument on, on Facebook. Don't get in arguments on Facebook. It's just not wise. So I got in a pretty heated argument on Facebook with a guy. But the issue I had, had the problem I had was that there was a pastor who um, was appealing to sensuality in order to gain attention, in order to sell his books. And he said he was doing it in the name of the gospel. And that's one of the signs of these false teachers is that there's a lack of godliness. There's a lack of holiness. When a pastor can stand up in the pulpit and use cuss words, that's troublesome. That's a lack of holiness. When a pastor can start off a service with a song that promotes hell and celebrates the journey to hell. A secular song. That's not holiness. That's a problem. Paul says over and over again, watch out! This ungodliness is, something's wrong here. If your leaders, if your pastors are, are, are acting in an unholy fashion, if they're appealing to sensuality, if they're, if they're living a life where what's coming out of their heart isn't pure and, and good and right, then something is wrong here. That's not the way a shepherd should be leading the sheep. It happens all over the place. And I believe it's tied to this desire to please men. Because you don't please men anymore. You know, there's a reason Little House on the Prairie isn't on TV anymore. And there's no attempt to make a remake of it. Because it was a clean show. And if you're going to appeal to men today, then you've got to do something extraordinary, extravagant, something attention-grabbing. Strap your marriage bed to the roof of the church, as one pastor did recently. Are we fools that we can't see what's going on in our culture? That we can't see what's going on in our world. Second Peter 2.17 says, These are waterless springs, talking about false teachers, mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for speaking loud boasts of folly. Just listen to this. Verse 18. Speaking loud boasts of folly. They entice by sensual passion of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Number five, 
How do we identify wolves? Well, what motivates the teachers? Because wolves love money. False teachers are usually in it for the money. The love of money is the root running through their ministry, springing up with all sorts of evils. That's why Paul refers again to his example here. This really came out, came, came just off the pages to me this week as I was thinking about this because all over the place Paul talks about these false teachers being greedy for gain. But he doesn't mention in this text directly. But what he does do is after he's talking about wolves, he brings them back to his own example. And in verse 33 he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know how these hands, that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard And in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul, again, is appointing himself and saying, this is what a shepherd looks like. He's not greedy for gain. He's not in it for the money. He's willing to work hard. He's willing to go without what he's even due from the church in order to shepherd the body. Titus Titus 1 verse 11 says, They must be silenced, these false teachers, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. 2 Peter 2, 3 says, And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. And later in verse 14 he says, They have hearts trained in greed. 1 Timothy 6 says that these teachers treat godliness as a means of gain. Greed. The desire for gain. As one wolf, and I'm convinced as a wolf, that I saw once on TV look into the camera on a television station and say, God wants to get you out of your credit card debt. Okay? Well, God doesn't want you to be in credit card debt. That's true. You're not supposed to be indebted like that. But he says, God wants you to be out of credit card debt. And he wants you to show that you've got faith. And if you'll sow a seed of faith, he'll get you out of that credit card debt just like this. So what I want you to do is to call in right now with the credit card on which you have debt and pledge $1,000 and God will eliminate your debt. If that's not big old ears sticking up, I don't know what is. And why the switchboard lit up, I don't know. Apart from the fact that we live in an age when people aren't discerning. And they have no idea who the wolves are. Because they love Jesus. He said he loved Jesus. He told me to give him a thousand bucks. Okay. Here you go. There went grandma's retirement. Foolishness. And it reigns in our church today. Now all of those things I've already mentioned can exist in someone who is not a wolf. Okay. Someone who's not a wolf can be greedy for gain. Someone who's not a wolf can also be prideful and arrogant. Someone who's not a wolf can really teach. There's been some really bad teaching that I've heard from guys I don't think are wolves. They just don't have a good grasp of the scriptures. It's still dangerous. But here's the one. Here's the question that sort of is the ultimate question. Last slide for me, guys. How do we identify wolves? What is at the heart of their teaching? Wolves point people away from Jesus and the gospel. And now, verse 32, And now I commend you to God 
and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. Paul points them to God. Paul points them to Jesus. Paul points them to the word of his grace, to the gospel. Jude 4 says, For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Titus 1.16 They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. 2 Peter 2.1 False prophets rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. 1 John 2, 22, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Hmm. Galatians 1, 8. But even, at, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The earliest and still most prevalent heresy in the history of the church was the Judaizers that came in and began to say, you've got to have something plus the gospel. You've got to add something to the gospel. In their case, the Mosaic Law. And that heresy has continued to be in the church and it's to some degree in every church since the beginning of the church age. The Bible teaches that we are saved by Christ alone. We are saved through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. We bring nothing to the table. We add nothing. Just as I mentioned earlier, Pelagians taught that man was corrupt but not totally depraved. And therefore he could come to God on his own. And to this day in many churches and in a lot of churches, we teach that God needs us to cooperate with him. But the Bible says no. What does this teacher say about salvation? Now we must be careful here. Due to the man-centeredness of our day, some people may very sound very semi-Pelagian, but in reality... They just practice doctrinal apathy and are imprecise with their words. And if you press them, they would say, yeah, I trust in Jesus Christ alone. But that's where this lack of theological precision in our churches is so damaging. Because it leaves an open door for heresies just to, to walk right in and say, you know what? I'm glad you believe in Jesus. I love Jesus too. We all do. Praise God. I'm glad you do. But you know what? You really need to do this too. You need to be baptized in a certain way. Um, you need to be a part of this denomination. Uh, you need to you know, follow these rules. And we add things to the gospel. Now, I was originally setting out this morning to ask, answer a second question, which was this. How do we deal with wolves? And this is the most touchy part of the message. And it's the most important part of the message, I believe, for our church. But I'm not going to have time to get to it today. I realize that. I'm glad you guys are praying for me this week. I have struggled more this week to prepare a message than I ever remember. Struggling through a text. Struggling through a message. 
by far. And I want to talk about how we deal with wolves. It needs to be decisive, but it also needs to be done carefully. Okay, I'm afraid that sometimes we deal with wolves and false teaching in a way that actually does damage to the church. And so we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about some of the errors we may fall into when we're trying to correct false teaching. We're also going to talk about, well, what is truly false teaching? What are, what, what are, what's wolf teaching and what's not wolf teaching? What's just, just Christians not agreeing about things? So we're going to talk about these, break this down. I want to spend more time on it. If I could squeeze it in right now, but I would be doing you and, well, I'd be doing the, uh, the Word of God a disservice to try to run through this really fast. So we're going to end right here with the gospel. We're going to end with the gospel. If the teacher is adding anything to the gospel, then he very well may be a wolf. He is a wolf. If he outright says that Jesus isn't enough, that what Jesus did on the cross isn't sufficient, then he's a wolf. You don't have to look any farther. Those are teeth you see. Those are big ears. Yes, that is a wolf. Because if Satan can get you to put your hope in anything outside of Christ, he's got you. If Satan can get you to put your hope in anything outside of Christ, he's got you. So it's the most prevalent thing in the church today. It's probably perhaps the most overlooked thing in the church today. And so if you're here this morning, and my question for you is simply this. If you're here this morning and you are putting your hope in anything else, you're putting your hope in something you did, something you accomplished, something you merited, something you earned from God. Olivia and I sat down last night and did her devotions, and we talked the, the, about the difference between grace and merit. Grace and merit. And I asked her several questions. Okay, is this an example of grace, or is this an example of merit? And I'm thankful that she answered them all right. She understood the difference between merit and grace. But sometimes it can be tricky. God loves me because I go to church regularly. Is that the foundation of God's love for you? Is that grace or merit? That's merit. It's not grace. God loves you because on a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, Jesus shed his blood and purchased you. He forgave your sins through the shedding of that blood and he gave you his righteousness. So the love of the Father is now upon you because of the Son and only because of the Son. Because previously, the wrath of God was upon you. Justly so. And for those who are outside of the Son, who reject the Son, the wrath of God remains on them. But we praise God that before the foundation, from before the foundation of the world, that God chose some for salvation. And what a precious thing that is to know that we belong to Him. And how precious it is to know that His love is not based upon our performance, but upon His Free grace. If you hear anything outside of that, grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, watch out for those ears. Because there are plenty in the church who will teach differently. Hey, we're not that big of a church, but 
the warning that Paul gave the Ephesian elders is the same one for us. From amongst this group right here can emerge people teaching false things about the gospel. There can be those that are greedy for gain in here. If I can just get in, if I can just get a, get a place on this staff at the church, maybe. Hey, we don't have any money, I promise you. Whatever it might be. And then I hope Deemer and I tremble at this text. And watch ourselves closely. Because if, I'll just tell you who I am. I am a weak, sinful man. And I get distracted. And there are weeks where I am not in the Word like I should be. For a thousand reasons. Sometimes it may be church related. Sometimes it may be not. And I am susceptible as anybody else to walk away from that word and to begin teaching something false. So I beg for you to pray for me. Don't just pray for me when I say, hey, next week's going to be the toughest sermon in the history of Harbin's. It's kind of a silly thing to say last week anyway. Pray for me every day of every week and pray for Deemer. Pray that we will stay faithful to the word. Pray that we won't stray from the word please so right now let's close our heads close our heads close our eyes bow our heads keep your heads open fill it with the gospel let's close our eyes and bow our heads and let's pray and let's conclude with a song heavenly father lord as we enter into this time just to uh, respond to your word lord i pray father that you would just take any foolishness and error on my part and just strike it strike it away get it out of the ears get it out of the recollection of the people here and and lord just let your truth reign let your truth push into our hearts and so lord i just pray that you forgive me for my mistakes and foolishness even as i prepared this message today lord and i just trust lord that you you make beauty beautiful things out of our messes and we trust solely in jesus christ my hope for a good sermon is the same as my hope for salvation. Jesus alone. Oh God, I pray that everyone here in this church body, that their hope for sanctification, their hope, their hope to be holy, more holy tomorrow than they are today, isn't in some sort of checkoff list or program, but it's in Jesus Christ alone. Not that we can't go through programs and do checkoff lists and have systems that we like that are, that are helpful and beneficial, but God, our hope isn't in those things. God, may our hope be in Christ alone. So God, I pray right now, if there be anybody in here who have, who's lived this life and who have, who's come into the church with just this idea of, 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 of religion and joining a body and just kind of going through the motions, but they'd never really placed their hope and their faith in Christ alone, that they wouldn't go anywhere farther than this room today, and they would get one of the men in here, get Deemer or I, and, and talk about this, talk about this need for Christ, talk about this need for, to put their faith in Christ alone. And God, protect Harbins, protect us from the wolves. Lord, I am, I am so overwhelmed by the day and age we live in. When, when used to Books had to be written, or wolves had to come into town to spread their heresies. Now you just click a mouse, and it's there, all over the place. 
And I am frankly overwhelmed by it. It's all over the place. And God, we need your help. We need your grace and mercy. Protect us from the wolves. Keep us holy. Keep us humble. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.